Yo, this hot, this the spot, there it is pod.com We're interviewing the best comedians, so tune in quick and get your ears receiving them We talking about life and life to stream right to you From the microphone right to your home, dude Side note, this might get embarrassing, but no, don't sweat, yo Cause there it is Welcome to the There It Is Podcast, a comedy podcast to help you find your inspiration. I'm your host, Jason Farr. Let's do this. Thanks so much for being here. Great guest today, an old friend, Sari Karplus. We connected years before I even started doing comedy. We're talking MySpace days. Some of you kids don't even know what that is. Well, but thanks for joining us. We have a fun episode today. Sari is a comedian, a writer, and a filmmaker, and she's done a lot of cool stuff. We talk about all of it, so let's just get right to it. Here's my chat with Sari Karplus. When did you start comedy? Were you in Do you college? mean in like the you mean like in the legitimate LA way or like the childhood inspiration actually did something way? Well, let's start there. Okay. <laughs> what were you doing in uh, childhood inspiration days? Well, I used to like sneak up and watch SNL when I wasn't allowed to be up, of course, uh, right? Okay. Yeah, yeah. And um, so when I was in fifth grade, we I did this like theater camp and we did a spoof on Saturday Night Live. So I was like Hans from Hans and Franz, of course. <laughs> Uh, you've seen my my build. It's totally appropriate for that. <laughs> and uh, church, I got to be the church lady. Like, it was that era of SNL, right? Okay, okay. Um, so, I don't know. I was always really into comedy then. And by the time I was in high school, I was in this really serious play. And it kept getting laughs. And I was like, oh, maybe I just better stick with comedy. <laughs> <laughs> that reminds and, me somewhat of, uh, it, of what I heard about Jennifer Aniston's experience when she was in high school. Oh, that really? She would do plays and she was doing dramas and, and trying to do dramas and people would always laugh. And oh, she okay. was just like, what is happening? Why am I getting laughs? From my... <laughs> just that you, some people just have a, a gravitation <laughs> towards the funnier part of things. Yeah, it's something about just a person's natural rhythm, I think. Yeah, yeah. Well, so I had very little comedy happening in college. For whatever reason, that was a dead time for me. So I was like, I got to get to L.A. And what were you majoring in? Um, Japanese. Okay, okay. <laughs> Which is useless. Like, <laughs> oh, all yeah. I can do is eavesdrop on tourists. But <laughs> What did you want your career to be at that point? I don't know. I just couldn't pick a major. I didn't want it to be undecided. Uh-huh, so. Uh-huh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so then you got you you pretty quickly said I need to go to L.A. then. Yeah. Yeah. Well, here's here's the I don't know. This might be too much information, but I went to Greece before I went to L.A. Mm-hmm. And that's where I decided I got to go to L.A. Because all my friends were doing cool stuff after college, and I had nothing. I was like, oh, I have a Japanese degree, and I don't want to go to Japan. <laughs> now what? <laughs> so I remembered how much I loved comedy, and I was like, I got to go do that. So okay. I actually got on a reality show, strangely enough, that Wait, brought me to L.A. What? Yeah. It's I've little known. That. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. If you IMDb me, you'll find it, but it's it's hard to... Um, I have IMDb'd you, and I don't 
remember seeing this. What it's, was it? Uh, yeah, so it was um, this, it was supposed to be like road rules, but for the internet. So nobody saw it, which was kind of great. Like you got paid to do this thing and no one saw it. Like, um, but it was sponsored by like Pepsi and Yahoo and like, you know, um, Hunt Lowry's uh, production company did it. He did a bunch of movies um, over the years. And so it was really cool. But yeah, it was it was a great way to end up in L.A. and know some people. I vaguely remember that now. uh, Us talking about this uh, a long time ago. But that was before it would have been easy to find. Uh, any clips of that or any clips yes. of that online? No, no. God. <laughs> <laughs> what was the angle? You know, they were literally trying to like have a network uh, like streaming wasn't even good then. Mm-hmm. Like your poor younger listeners would be like, what do you mean streaming wasn't good? Like how old are you? <laughs> but you couldn't really watch shows that much on online no you had to fully the way people saw things not on television (laughs) even though youtube was a thing it was just short clips then grainy clips grainy clips (laughs) but you had to have a physical copy of something or you had to download it in its entirety yeah. That's, that's how The Office became big was because people were buying it on, they're buying it per every yeah. episode on iTunes. Is that right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. I guess so, huh? And they were watching Very it on sure. subways. And that's when they, that's when it popped. Oh, interesting. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, downloading was a big deal because people started to have enough internet connection to download it, but there was no <laughs> place that could give you a good version to just watch. Right. Right. We are living in the future Um, and no one knows it. (laughs) Uh, So that show, um, it brought you to L.A., but it wasn't like a recent guest, Stuart Goldsmith, was he did a reality show, but it was for stand ups. This show was not about doing stand up, though. It was not. I mean, I got labeled as the comedian, but that was just you know, so they could give everyone like a thing. They needed an angle. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But um, no, it was before I did stand up. And honestly, I started the moment I landed in LA, like the day after I started improv at improv Olympic. Oh, okay. and that's where the, the real story began for mm-hmm. like, you know, making efforts. Yeah. So, so you were at IO West, uh, RIP. Unfortunately. Yeah. Um, so sad. Yeah. And you were, uh, so you were doing improv early on. Yeah, that was my start was improv. Mm-hmm. And in high school, we I used to teach improv with um, a friend of mine who ended up doing improv professionally at, at IO in Chicago. Oh. And, um, and we would teach other kids to do improv back in high school. And so when I came to LA, it was like, yes, I could do improv. <laughs> but it was like serious now in a big city, you know. Uh-huh. Um, but it was cool. Like, it's cool to see all those people come up. Um, yeah, I guess you did see a lot of people come up and and because you told me a long time ago you saw Neil Flynn because uh, this yep. was when Scrubs was on that you saw him yeah. riding up in some piece of crap uh, Corolla <laughs> or something like I that. Did. I did. Well, <laughs> right. and you know what's funny is the first time I ever took the stage to do improv, it was this little group we put together and um, <laughs> it's uh, it was a cage match, right? Harold cage mm-hmm. match. And 
Neil Flynn's team, uh, which was awesome. Beer Shark mm-hmm. Mice was legendary. Yeah. They were the winners every time. And so we're like, well, we'll just go. We'll try it. <laughs> oh, God. What a <laughs> what a terrible moment. <laughs> I'm like, hey, Neil Flynn, I'm up against you. And he just looks at me like, oh, kid. Oh, wow. Yeah. Um, yeah. You And then he was obviously already out there since he was on scrubs but you saw people before they were famous oh yeah yeah well you're in a town long enough i'm sure you're starting to have this in new york a little but um <laughs> you you stick around a while like your friends are talented people and they start mm-hmm. getting work and it's awesome to see um it's harder when your jobs aren't as cool but um <laughs> but hey man mad props to like you know see people getting shows and yeah uh, yeah, who were some of the people uh, then at that point that you saw at I.O.? Who then became I.O., Wyatt Snack was like working there. Oh, um, cool. Yeah, he wasn't on a team with me, but um, but we would see him all the time mm-hmm. working the work in the front. Um, I'm trying to think who was taking classes. Well, I don't know. One of the people in my classes was already doing well for themselves. Writers, actors. I, one of my friends is like on American Horror Story. Um, she uh-huh. in my group. The the standups that I worked with, by far, like. You oh know. yeah. Well, I know that um, early on you had when you were doing standup, you were around B.J. Novak. Yes. And who is who's <laughs> done well for himself. He certainly has. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> speaking of The Office. Yeah. Right. <laughs> When you started doing stand-up, how long had you been in L.A.? Um, I started, like, uh, maybe a year or two after I moved to L.A. Mm-hmm. I think I found that L.A. wasn't a great town for improv because there's so many people wanting to do acting. Right. And improv is about making everyone else look good, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Acting really is about making yourself look good. Mm-hmm. And it's a tricky thing. Like, um I remember I had submitted a tape of our improv group to the Chicago Improv Festival, which was, you know, the biggest improv festival. And I ended up befriending the guy who ran it for like 20 years. And um, he gave some really like honest feedback. And the, and the feedback was very much like, hey, it looks like you're all trying to like get a deal, you know, not like you're working really well together. And I was like, you know what? It, yeah, that's kind of the vibe. And um and so I kind of thought somebody told, told me, oh, you should try stand up. I was like, oh, I don't know if that's for me. But I, I went and tried it and it ended up being a pretty good fit for a while. Mm-hmm. Because you get to write it. You get to own right. your own. I mean, you know. Right, right. Yeah, if you're up there as someone who's done both, if you're up there for yourself, then obviously stand up is the <laughs> the better medium for yeah. you because you can uh from a selfish point of view it's a better medium just because there's there're no other ideas coming in that you have to field and and find a way for you to shine through it or something like that. and then from a uh non-selfish point of view it's just kind of shitty to be on stage <laughs> when no one is helping you out and you're not helping anyone else out it's just like it's bad work it's yeah. bad ethics yeah. <laughs> you know, it's it's no one's well, having a good time no one's laughing right right 
Yeah, it's, uh, <laughs> it, you know, and, and it wasn't as bad as it sounds, but it certainly had an element of that. And right. yeah, improv, you can own, you can be yourself, you can do the work, you know, it's a lot of prep. Mm-hmm. Improv is kind of fun because it's like, you know, you're showing up for the exam, whereas stand up is like writing the essay. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good that's a good analogy. Um, I always heard it was really hard to start as a stand up in Los Angeles because it's such a industry town that it's easy to get burned if somebody who can hire you sees you when you're in that period where you're just sucking because everyone has to go through that period uh and then they can sort of uh, not literally blacklist you but essentially you get kind of burned on certain people they'll never see you as that uh, no matter how good you get it's almost like it it takes more than that for them to just see how far you've come they just see you as that person they saw who sucked is that true that was certainly my experience i don't know if that's still true and i'm i'm sure there are ways to buck that trend like Mm -hmm. i i felt lucky to do fairly well in la having started in la but i think i think i lost a few opportunities because i was still getting my chops when people were really seeing me, people who were running really good rooms. And sometimes that meant I got a really good show because I had a good night, somebody important saw me. And, you know, next thing I know, I'm showcasing for Conan. You know, it's awesome, right? Sometimes things just move really fast when you're doing it in LA. Mm -hmm. But then conversely, you have a bad night and, you know, so-and-so who runs the next big room sees you. They're like, oh yeah, that girl sucks. You don't want her on your show. And you're like, dude, I had one bad night. Like you should have seen me the other night. And and there's less forgiveness. Like, I don't know if this is still true, but this was my experience that hanging out with New York comics was awesome because people just had more camaraderie naturally. Mm-hmm. But in L.A., I feel like they needed to know you were good and then they'd let you in. Whereas New York, it was kind of like, I don't almost want to see you because I don't really I just want to know if you're cool. Yeah, and I don't know how that goes now, but that that was how it was. When I was coming up. Yeah. And how long did it take to sort of shake that? You know, I mean, I I don't know. I think <laughs> it's a constant struggle. I think I got some really awesome stuff early on even. So I wouldn't say that I had any sort of stigma. Hmm. Um, but, you know, it's always just meeting certain people and um, you jive with people you don't. Yeah. What all were you doing as a stand-up before you started like running a room yourself? Were you touring a lot or was it LA gigs that you're you're booking? Um, I'm trying to think the timeline. I think I was mostly doing LA gigs. Mm-hmm. And um it was sort of fortuitous when I started running a room. I think it was maybe like two or three years in. Okay. Um there was a guy who ran a room at the knitting factory who his show ended and my favorite bar had a theater that opened in the top of it. Mm-hmm. And it was this great bar right near the Beverly center. Um, and it was called St. Nick's. And I was like dying to have a show up there. And sure enough, I got to do this show and it was a great room for stand up, like super warm. Um, it was really easy for comics to say yes to come to the show because people did really well. Like, it, you know, there's a lot of rooms in L.A. that are just tough. Like the improv is tough. Like it's mm-hmm. if it's not packed, it's not that warm a room. Oh, wow. 
Yeah. And, um, and, and they can't pack it every night. Like, you know, it's, some nights are great. Some nights aren't. And the comedy um, store could be a tough room. Oh, definitely. And there's the main room and there's the belly room. Like the comedy store also had a lot of like other vibes. Like it was really dark space and really like, I don't know, this, this haunted vibe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Yeah. It seems like even just when I hear Mark Maron talk about it, it's never like specifics, but it is like, there is this dark vibe about this, this, uh, this place that I'm getting from everyone who talks about the comedy store. Yeah. Well, I mean, it was, you know, there were a certain group of people that did comedy there and there were some people who were good, but a lot of people just weren't my style. And, mm. you know, it's not, that's a big blanket statement. So I would just say like the people who were in my crew of like, what was alternative comics, right. Mm-hmm. Are now mainstream comics um, that, you know, there wasn't as much crossover with the comedy store. Okay. And when you start- improv, there was, the improv, oh, there was it. Okay. Yeah doing that show at St. Nick's um, it sort of ended unceremoniously on a night where I was showcasing for HBO and it was breaking my heart because the owners of the um, venue were being super weird. And the HBO people are like, what's going on? What's going on? I'm like, they are trying to shut me down right now. (laughs) And so it, it was, it was a tough time because I was like, I had this great thing and and the bar just decided, no, we're not going to do it anymore. And, um, and it, we always brought business. We always, yeah, everyone was happy to be there. It was packed, but. Um, yeah, you told me that like Chris Rock would drop in. Well, that was when, okay. So right after that show ended, you know, I sent out like the, I'm so sad everybody, but the show's over. Thanks everyone for, you know, supporting it. Mm-hmm. And I got an email from a friend of mine who was like, hey, I booked the improv. Why don't you bring your show here? Oh, okay. So I was like, oh, well, that sounds good. (laughs) So (laughs) when I brought it to the improv, um, yeah, Chris Rock did a couple drop-ins. One of the nights um, I had booked Louis Mm C.K., I I get the sense that Louis had told Chris, like, I'm going to do this show. I'm sure you could come drop in. Like, Mm -hmm. how could Chris Rock not come drop in on any show? (laughs) (laughs) Right. But but it was cool because I had, the first time he came, I had approached him and I was like, "Um, I noticed you're here i think you're awesome like i would love to see would you like to go up and he's like no no i'm good and then literally like i went up and he changed his mind and he like went right up <laughs> like okay cool this is awesome yeah i mean it's hard to be no matter where you are uh if you you could just be an open micer but it's hard to just go and watch and not get that bug to get to get on stage yourself Yes. As a comedian, don't you feel much more comfortable, like either hovering in the back or being on stage? (laughs) Being in the crowd of a comedy show is so uncomfortable to me. (laughs) I think it is for every stand up. Yeah. 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 I mean, an improv show I can sit and watch. But when it was stand up shows, unless I'm seeing something where it's like, well, no, there is no caveat. No matter what, if it's a stand up show. I'm going to get the bug to get on stage. Right. I'm going to I'm going to wish I was backstage <laughs> cutting up with with people. Totally. <laughs> uh, yeah. So that did the I just I don't want this to be a, a, a dangling chad. Um the HBO opportunity did that end up not working out because of did they shut you down that night? They did shut us down that night. So I you think didn't maybe get we get the showcase. 
I got to showcase, but I was not in my best place to do that. Uh, yeah. And I, I don't know that had I had a better set, I would have landed, you know, the gig. But it was unfortunate because I was pretty stressed out by right. maybe the show wasn't going to happen. But also do your best performance. Right. <laughs> Oh, you wow. know, because I also wanted everyone else to be able to perform. Like, it wasn't just about me. Like, yeah, I want to showcase for the HBO guys. They were really nice. Like, they were super kind about the whole thing. But the owners of the bar were not. <laughs> so weird. But so, so many times they're like, a lot of owners can be insane. Yeah, well, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> How long did you end up running that show, including that first theater space? Um, I, well, I ran shows for close to three years and, um, I think the St. Nick's one was like once a week. And, um, I think the improv one was like every other week. Mm -hmm. Uh, it followed Drew Carey and friends on Thursday nights. So we we got a decent like crew given that spot, even though it was a little bit of a late night spot. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. What sort of stuff did you learn about the industry during that time period? That, that oh, you man. think is like, everyone needs to know this. <laughs> Listen, I think running a room, whether it's stand up or, or uh, producing a short or do, being in charge, being the casting person, if you're an actor, like always try at some point, even if it's just a one time shot to be on the other side, because it's eye opening. And in all those respects, um, in producing a show, I thought it was really fascinating that it didn't matter how successful, how famous anyone was about who was super nice and who was super jerky. And I, in my heart of hearts, I was like, oh, all those really successful famous people are not going to give me the time of day. And all these, you know, open micers who are getting their big break, like they're going to be super nice. And that was not it at all. Um, and, And I think that was interesting that, you know, how nice you are doesn't, or how professional you are, doesn't uh, translate to more or less work either. Um, but it's interesting what a stumbling block that can feel like when you're in charge and you just need things to run smoothly and people mm-hmm. to show up. And um, the, a weird side note, mm-hmm. um, the very first show I booked, um, and actually my co-producer booked the comedians on that first show, not me for that first one. My last show that I booked on my own because he wasn't involved in the last one or in the, in the improv one. Jeff Garland happened to be on the bookends. <laughs> <laughs> and both of those shows, he spent his entire set uh, dicking on the venue. <laughs> oh, gosh. And I was like, oh, I just, I just hope the audience likes it because I feel like he hates the lighting. And he hates, <laughs> like, oh, I, I just want to do a nice thing here. <laughs> um, you know, and I hope he enjoyed his time. I think it's just maybe somebody with an improv background is working with what's around them to create comedy. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but I thought that was interesting. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you... You were in a time period where there were a lot of people who had, obviously you were seeing people who had already made it, and then you started seeing other people start to make it. And um, I don't know what entirely at that point your expectations for your career were, but what was that experience like for you? I mean, were you, you don't seem like a jealous person from what I know of you, but were, did you battle <laughs> jealousy during that time period? Oh, of course. I mean, you know, it's hard because there's a lot of ego that goes into stand up. Yeah. And we as comedians, 
we want people to like us and laugh. Like it's kind of the nature of the beast. Right. Uh, or if you don't like us, at least laugh. <laughs> right. <laughs> but um, fake it till I make it. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so I don't know. I mean, I, I always had slightly bigger, you know, hopes for some of my stand up, but I did reach some some measures that were more than I could have hoped for. Mm-hmm. You know, when when um, one of my heroes in comedy recommended me for a showcase, I was like, what? You know, he saw me and liked me and put me up for a thing. Like, holy cow. Who was that? Um, it was Patton Oswalt. Oh, very nice. Yeah, it was a long time ago, but I just, I adored him for that. He did yeah. that for a lot of comedians. He was like, you're good. You should go up on this. People should see you. And he went out of his way for like, to organize a showcase for like 20, 20, 30 comics to show like the producers of one of the late night shows. That's really sweet. He's so sweet. I had never heard that about him. And it, it's just like another reason why uh, I should like Pat Oswalt. And I do. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah. 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 I mean, it's, I feel bad. Like I'm mentioning so many people's names. I, well, I'm, I want you to. I, you're not <laughs> trying to, I'm having to twist your arm to name drop. So don't I know. Worry. I'm such like, a I'm such like a natural name dropper, but I feel like <laughs> like to put this out to the world, I feel like I might be overstepping. Um, <laughs> since I haven't also talked to a lot of these people in a while, like mm. I was certainly cordial with a number of them. I mean, to be fair, Jeff Garland would never recognize me on the street if I saw him, even though I did book him the once. But, you know, I think Patton would recognize me. But there, you know, it's a lot has happened. Yeah. <laughs> over the years. Oh, yeah. Yeah. yeah, for sure. Um, but, um, but yeah, like I would have liked to, you know, I saw my friends get on like premium blend and do the late night circuit. Like, you know, it was cool because I got to go with friends to like be backstage for their late night performance. Mm-hmm. Like that was super cool. Um, I mean, I have great stories. Uh, I mean, that I would never trade for anything. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I would have liked to go further and stand up, but I kind of lost my hustle at one point. Like mm-hmm. I kind of just was like, I need a more tangible form of comedy. Mm-hmm. And that's when I started switching over to doing short films. Yeah, I was just about to, you made the segue so easy and I'm fumbling with it now because I'm talking over it. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, you started making short films and that was part of why I was asking like what your ambitions were when you were doing stand up. Was that something that you thought was in your wheelhouse? Like how did that come about? Other well, than I had this I had this really funny moment. Oh dang it, Carplus, don't name drop. Um, okay, I'm gonna <laughs> use no names on this. Um, <laughs> when I was doing stand up, I visited my brother in Germany. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And um it was killing me that I couldn't do any stand up there. Cause I was going up every week in LA, you know, and it was like, you gotta keep it going. You gotta keep it going. Mm-hmm. And um, while I visited him there, I was like, oh, I should make a little documentary about comedy in Germany. <laughs> and so I did, I used, I mean, it was a terrible camera. I used his like camcorder style camera. <laughs> uh-huh. And um, I brought his nanny with me to be the translator. And we just interviewed people on the street about comedy in Germany. <laughs> and uh it was it was fun like I, I it wasn't a real documentary like I brought it back to the U.S. I made up translations to make it funnier and um I showed it at one of my shows and I remember like 
I have these friends who have turned out to be like the most gigantic directors you can imagine. And they saw it. They're like, that's so interesting. And so good. And I'm like, Oh my God. Like, Oh, but, uh, and and I will name drop this. It will name drop this, but Reggie Watts did the voiceover on it. Oh, so cool. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Late, late show. And, um, Comedy Bang Bang musical director. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> and I just saw him last night on Storybots with my kids. <laughs> oh, that's sweet. <laughs> um, so that that's how the the bug bit you to do. Yeah. To I was like, that. hey, this is cool because I don't have to say, hey, everyone come to my show or get the perfect, you know, set where I can send everyone a, you know, video. Like it was really like I can build something that's funny and share it and have it, mm-hmm. you know, and there's something great about that. And then little CEO was born and little CEO was born uh, literally before <laughs> you started. But I mean, the actual yeah, he was short born. <laughs> he wasn't born on camera. <laughs> <laughs> so that's your nephew, little CEO, correct? Yes. yes. But you, your son, your oldest son looks a lot they look a lot alike, don't they? Yeah, a little bit. Actually, my <laughs> oldest son looks kind of like Macaulay Culkin in uh, Home Alone. But <laughs> I, uh, and there are three little CEOs now. Yes, there are three. Three. And how old is he now? He's not so little anymore, obviously. He's like sixteen now. Oh my gosh! Yeah, <laughs> I yeah. only know him. Started when he started when he. Yeah, he was three at the time. Like he couldn't. <laughs> We had to get creative because he couldn't say the word shenanigans. So we had to like. <laughs> I remember that. Captions. <laughs> you put those together, uh, which were a lot of fun. You also had a short film in Without a Hitch. Yes. That you also starred in. Yes. that That's an interesting one. The That was my longest short. Is that a thing? A longest short? <laughs> I, I guess. I don't know <laughs> if there's a, a category separating them. Yeah, that that was a good learning experience. And it's interesting because I didn't even set out to direct that one. I brought it to a friend of mine to direct. And he was like, you know what? I think you should direct this. And I was like, but I'm I'm in it. He's like, yeah, but I think you can do it. You know, I'll, I'll be in the background, you know, as the camera, you know, and producing and we'll make sure everything goes well. And I was like, let's do it. And we did the really traditional, like it was actually a SAG low budget, like, you know, we shot on a boat, uh, two boats. Um, it was a big ordeal, um, but it was fun. A lot of learning experiences. I had to get out of a permitting issue by talking sweet to a park ranger and (laughs) you learn a lot. You learn a lot about guerrilla filmmaking, which can lead you to a more, you know, complicated filmmaking if you so choose. (laughs) Oh Yeah. I mean, especially in L.A., I mean, even Swingers, there was, there were some scenes in Swingers that they filmed without a permit. Really? Uh, I think that scene on the side of the road where, um, with just Trent and, and Mike after Vegas, where uh, Trent's kind of talking up Mike, um, there's a scene, apparently during that scene, if you listen closely enough, John Favreau says you can hear sirens in the background, <laughs> and, and he and they. That was he, for them. 
He gave that impression that it was for them because they didn't have a permit and they weren't supposed to be filming there. <laughs> and so they like got out of there real quick. <laughs> wow. And but that's the thing, because so they're all they were also doing an indie movie at that time. I mean, it right. blew up, obviously, and they all right. blew up. But it was and there was there was no indication it was going that way. It was just right. like we're making this little film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And, but I mean, I think that's what's interesting is you even get to some bigger films and you run into things. They're just they have to be handled so by the book. But there's all those things. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Like you know, we ran into this just with a short film. So little CEO three, our lead actor lost his two front teeth in the middle of shooting. <laughs> <laughs> and like, suddenly we had to make it part of the story. <laughs> it was so obviously different. <laughs> <laughs> That's hilarious. Yeah. And I, I don't know that there's any other actor who can say that they lost their two front teeth in the middle of filming something. Unless they got punched in a bar fight. Right. Oh. Which um, maybe that's happened. <laughs> I'm I sure maybe know. Mickey Rourke has a story. Maybe like, Mickey so, Rourke. <laughs> yeah. Same, same. <laughs> so, so how many shorts have you done at this point? I don't know. I mean, it's somewhere in the like dozen, dozen ish some are some are really like super quick and so I, I hesitate to say if it's like a full short they're like you know a minute long and mm -hmm. you know they they were actually pretty easy to make but but the more elaborate you get the more it almost feels like it's not a short but it's also a short mm -hmm. yeah and at uh, i guess at some point during your making shorts you get married and settle down start having kids yeah yeah uh, but you still make some shorts every once in a while Yep. Well, when I was pregnant with my second kid, I made pregnant parkour. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what is the, and I know that um, without a hitch was being distributed a lot because I remember you talking about that. Uh, what is the approach now? Are you uh, trying to go as big as putting it into different festivals still? Um, you know, it depends on the, it depends on the piece because some mm -hmm. things are, a better fit for festivals and some are not mm -hmm. uh, depending on the length and the style. I mean, that's another, I think profession that would be great to wear those shoes for a second, a, a programmer of a festival or mm -hmm. an executive at a, you know, a, a production company, because when you're the gatekeeper to those, you are actually looking for really specific things. Mm -hmm. And to know that as a creator is a little harder to identify sometimes. Um, Interestingly enough, one of the place that Without a Hitch premiered was a festival that was um, new to L.A. It was like a West Hollywood uh, festival. And um, I think part of I mean, I think he you know, the program director enjoyed the film enough to let it in. But I also think it was partly just like a me reaching out like, a, what are you looking for? Is something mm -hmm. like this appropriate for your festival? And you can't always ask those questions to everyone, but if you have the chance, sometimes it helps because they'll steer you in the right direction mm -hmm. if you don't already know. That's a good point. And also I think um, with in terms of getting these made, I mean, financing, the first few that you were doing, that was before GoFundMe and, and uh, the crowdfunded sources were there. Uh, Patreon yeah. wasn't this big thing like it is now. I mean, imagine if you had that stuff oh, at your disposal man. now. 
<laughs> right? <laughs> well, and the tech and the technology now, like I mean, yeah. to get a really good camera, then you would have to drop a lot of money. I mean, still, if you want like a red or like a dragon or whatever, you know, you got to put down some money. But there's a lot of great technology that is at your fingertips. That if you are doing something that is more story based, the quality is secondary, mm-hmm. and you know you can get away with a lot more. Mm-hmm. That's more readily available now. Oh yeah. I mean, you can use an iPhone 11 and film some <laughs> film stuff. Yeah, you can. I mean, there was, um, have you ever seen um, Seed and Spark? It's like a filmmaker community. I don't think so. Yeah, it's it's pretty interesting. Um, check it out sometimes. Seed and Spark. I mean, it's more for uh, filmmakers than comedians. But what's cool about it is they have a lot of resources for making stuff. Mm-hmm. And there was a great one that Mark Duplass was on. And he just talks about kind of that, like he's still in that mindset, even though he's made a name for himself, both on an actor level and a, you know, writer, director level. He still just makes stuff he wants to make Mm -hmm. and puts it out there and doesn't necessarily focus too hard on the quality. Sure, he wants a good shot. Sure, he wants the sound to be good. And but he's not over tweaking it like can happen when you have a one of the big major sort of things. He is yeah. at the right altitude for that, where he can stay kind of in the wheelhouse that he wants to stay in. Um, right. Maybe the Cohen brothers are like the biggest and get the can get the most money and. St- and stay in their wheelhouse and Spike Lee probably as well. But it seems like it's a little bit easier for the Coen brothers to do that. But if yeah. you get big enough to where you can make a superhero movie, then it's sort of hard to then shift gears and start doing the stuff that looks art- like an art house film, you know? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. exactly. Even if it's a drama. Right. They're, they're going to expect it to be glossy. That's, I guess that's the thing. Like, yeah. If it has to be glossy, then there's there's maybe just a lot that you aren't going to be allowed to do anymore as a as a filmmaker. Right. And and there is some level of price point for it to be glossy too because right. you'll need the talent and crew in addition to the equipment, you know. Mm-hmm. Every single setup is going to take a long time too. So you need more days and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's it, a lot it, more heart when people don't have to worry about those things in it. It feels like <laughs> totally, totally. And and listen, I'm all for a beautiful shot and um, yeah. for okay. getting uh, something that looks aesthetically pleasing. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, if your goal is to tell a story, that can be told in so many different ways. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, there are definitely a ton of examples of movies that have beautiful shots. Um, I guess the I guess I want to make a distinction just so the audience is clear between the movies like Brokeback Mountain, which obviously is not so glossy that they have to uh, sort of curb any creative freedom. Uh, But then you have the movies where it's like, look, this has to look a certain way for it to be a a tentpole movie or, or whatever. It has to be a big hit. It can't have these kind of elements in it. But when you're like a, if you're Mark Duplass, then you can say like, look, I just want to make these kind of movies that I want to make and not have to worry about it. Right. (laughs) And I mean, to be fair, like he does have a little bit of entitlement in this, that he has already created a bunch of movies that he has the freedom to 
just make something, you know? Right, right. But his point is fair. His yeah. point is legit. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I haven't seen Creep 2. I bet it looks a little better than the first Creep, but I bet it doesn't <laughs> well, look no. like, uh, what was the, uh, I don't know, like one of those big budget horror movies or something like that. Right, right. I haven't seen it. I saw the first one, and uh, you know, because everyone talks about how good it is, and um, I got to give them a lot of respect for what they pulled off. I wasn't super into the ending. I don't know. There's some of those movies, some of the horror movies, which I love horror movies. I'll watch all of them, <laughs> um, especially the ones that don't, uh, that aren't like publicized as being the best thing ever. Um, or pushed out there as being the best thing ever, even though it's a pretty paint-by-numbers movie. Um, <laughs> I I get really annoyed when a character in a movie is doing something that they just don't have to do, and it's obvious. Right, right. <laughs> and that was the problem I had towards the end of Creep, where it's like, at this point, I feel like any sane person would have just removed themselves from the situation. Are you allowed to spoil it? Because I don't know what you're referring to. I don't watch a lot of scary stuff. Okay, spoiler alert for everyone who has not seen Creep but is still interested. It is like a 10-year-old movie. Basically, Mark Duplass's character was just like playing games with this guy and being a real creep and scary person. Like, like this guy is a stalker. All the red flags. You need to move town. <laughs> Get as far away from this person. <laughs> but the like... Um, other character in the movie, the the guy, uh, he like removed him from uh, himself from the situation, but then put himself right back in the situation. It's like he left the scene. You know, like like I'll put it in terms like this: if it's one of those movies where it's like kids in a cabin, yeah, and someone's like trying to kill him, um, instead of getting in the car and leaving <laughs> the woods. <laughs> Uh, like, let me check cabin again. <laughs> right. Like, that's frustrating. But imagine if the person, if the kids left the cabin and are like, well, obviously some bad stuff is going there. We'll let's just leave. Let's call the police, send them out there. And then, for no good reason, they just go, like, you know what? Let's just go back to the cabin. <laughs> I feel bad for the guy who was trying to kill me earlier. And then they go and then they get killed. And it's like, well, there is no reason for you to go back to the cabin. Uh, like, why did you do that? Like, what was so important there? You had to go back with it. Right, right. So that's uh. how I, that, it's that sort of frustration that I had with um, what what was happening at the end of Creep. Oh, uh, I don't <laughs> um, But Creep 2 is also supposed to be decent. Uh, maybe I'll watch it just, just because I can't help it. It's a horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> I am curious about something. I Noted. just remember you telling me a story, and this is before Steve Harvey got like TV show, like talk show Steve Harvey world. Uh, I don't know what he was doing. I don't know if it was for his sitcom or what, but you told me that you had a meeting with him and yes. it just went sort of awry. <laughs> it was a very memorable meeting. <laughs> what? I don't remember all the details. There was something about... You want to hear the setup? Because I think this is a good lesson. The setup is a good lesson. Okay. I had a friend recommend me for this writing job. And mm -hmm. he forwarded the producers uh, a list of comics he knew. And I, I was on the list. And I'm like, yes, I got an opportunity for a writing job. Woohoo! And they never called me. And my friend's like, oh, they'll call you. Or just reach out to them. I'm like, reach out to them. 
like, they're supposed to call me. I was on the list. Right. I was like, well, everyone else got called. I'm like, what? Everyone else got called? And he's like, oh, here, here's the person's email. Just go ahead and email her and say, you know, you got left off. I'm like, okay. So I email her and she's like, oh yeah, sorry. Send us a packet. I'm like, okay. You know, newish, you know, comedy writer. I'm like, what's a packet? Right. What so I do like a page of jokes and whatever and um, like topical late night kind of jokes. Mm-hmm. And um, cause it was uh, they were, they were adding like a monologue section to his show at that time. Okay. And, and so um, they got my jokes and they said, Oh, these are great. Can you write them more in his voice? And I was like, Oh, okay. <laughs> and so like, I had to like study up on his voice and like write something that would be, um, in his voice. And, and so I got a meeting and I was like, Oh, awesome. And so I get called in and I'm like sitting there kind of nervously with my legs crossed. And this guy's like, Oh, are you Sari? And I'm like, yeah. Okay. And I stand up. He's like, Oh, sit down shorty. And I'm like, Oh, how did he know I was short? <laughs> uh, <laughs> I'm like, this is, this is exciting. This is exciting. And so I finally get called in and, um, I received some really nice compliments about my jokes. So I was like, okay, good. Like I'm, I'm here legit. Like not nobody, nobody's doing any favors. Like they like my stuff. And, uh, and then yeah, Steve Harvey is there and he's like ordering his assistant around. He's like, no, I said a strawberry milkshake. What is this? He's <laughs> like oh, yelling at his assistant in front of me over a milkshake. And I couldn't tell if it was like playful joking or like actually like ribbing him. But, uh-huh. um, I was like, oh, okay, I'm sorry I'm in the middle of this. <laughs> yeah, it was it was cool though. Like it was um, you know, a neat experience. And I mean, I technically got the job, but I didn't end up doing the work because of logistics. But <laughs> okay. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> well, so it turned out the job was actually for a head writer, and I did not have the credentials to be a head writer. Oh, snap. Yeah. And so they had just brought me in because they liked my stuff and wanted to meet me and see if maybe mm-hmm. there was something that would be a good fit, which is awesome. That, that was at least my understanding. Mm-hmm. And so I showed up for like my first day as a consultant because they were like, well, why don't you come in? You can help us punch up and whatever. And I was like, yes, mm-hmm. you got it. And I show up for my first day and the guy who did get the job was like, yeah, you know, all of his buddies that he owes favors to is really going to do this. So we're not going to need you. Mm-hmm. And I was like, Oh, okay. Yeah. So I could see. But I'm still friends with that guy. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. That's wild. Uh, It's so good to talk to you again. Yeah. It's good to talk to you too. Uh, It's now time to create something together at the end of the episode here. And I'm feeling a short film uh, is a a good direction for us to go. I don't know. uh, how you come up with ideas. So maybe that's what we could hash out. It's just how you process and come up with an idea for a short film. Okay. Well, usually it is from a conversation or just a moment, right? Uh-huh. So let's talk about pregnant parkour for a second. Okay. Um, I was super pregnant and unable to move. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just going to parkour over to the couch now just jokingly, and my parkour was shuffling gently (laughs) over to the couch. And then I was like, oh man, you know what would be amazing? To see actual pregnant parkour. 
<laughs> and, and in my head, I'm like, I don't know if I could pull this off. I need somebody who can do be a stunt double who can do actual parkour. Mm -hmm. And so I, I put a message out to a bunch of the studios in L.A. And I, I had a few people like kind of rip me apart, like our guys don't do that. Like, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm like, oh, OK, never mind. I was just wondering right. if I could do this thing. And I got one response that was like, that sounds cool. Mm -hmm. And he looked the part and I was like, oh, my God, can I come watch you do parkour? And so I scheduled a time to come see him at the studio where he worked out. And he was so good. He was like the best one there. <laughs> so like it just I think some magic is always going to happen. But I think it always comes from a, an idea. And sometimes mm -hmm. it's just a joke that you make or um, a challenge that someone gives you like. Mm -hmm. Um, little CEO came up from a contest that was like, uh, can you make a short film about somebody who is too young to be doing the thing they're doing? Mm -hmm. And okay. I thought, oh, you know, it'd be great is if my nephew were running a company. <laughs> right. So, CEO. yeah. And then and then, you know, you start to hash out the logistics. Like if it sounds fun and interesting, like, hey, what if, what if we could do this? <laughs> How did uh, without a hitch? come up without a hitch well so i was acting or trying to act at the time mm -hmm. um and uh i thought you know what i gotta make my own opportunity so i i wrote without a hitch to make myself um because i wanted to be that character and uh i took a ucla extension class to like short filmmaking mm -hmm. and i took this class and then they were like yeah you can't star in your own film and i was like well then I am dropping out of this class. <laughs> I, I made it like a month and a half. And then I'm like, yeah, kind of defeats the purpose. <laughs> I guess that's... That, was another, that was another one where it's about a couple who wants to get married for all the wrong reasons. Like they don't want to actually be married. Mm -hmm, and mm -hmm. at the time I was in a relationship where I was like, I'm happy. Like, I don't want to marry this person, but we're happy. Like, why should we have to get married? Mm -hmm. And, but it, wouldn't that be nice if we had all the like, joys of a wedding <laughs> yeah <laughs> so i wrote it for that okay now i'm trying to think of uh an idea okay and and what comes to my mind the thing that's rattled around my brain a couple of times and i was just thinking of doing this for instagram but mm -hmm. um <laughs> maybe there's a way to expand this so uh as i mentioned earlier i'm moving uh moving up uh i mentioned to you off air yeah. <laughs> I'm moving to the third floor from yeah. the basement apartment. Right. Uh, so not not a not a big move at all. Not like a full George Jefferson. Right, 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 exactly. We're moving on up, but not to the east side. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's like the the north Partial side of this apartment building. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so we're moving yeah. on up to. Um and it is gonna be a deluxe apartment. Uh, but only kind of in the sky because it's the right, third right. floor. But uh, the <laughs> the joke that was rattling around in my brain was like starting the video saying like, ah, got to move, got to do it. It's move day, got a lot to do. And then show the process of moving. And it's like just going up a couple of flights of stairs. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> so if I were going to do or if we were going to collaborate yeah. and make a short film, what would we need to flesh that out, make it funny? 
well, that would be the first thing, flesh it out, make it funny. You and I would go back and forth and like, what would be the those moments that people just would love seeing? Like you throwing things up to the third floor window <laughs> that shouldn't be thrown up there <laughs> that make it, right? <laughs> right. Okay. <laughs> Whether it's a cat or... <laughs> how, do, how would we film that? Well, so that's where you get clever, right? Okay. That's where you got to get creative. And so you can do um, insert shots to fake it a thing, mm-hmm. right? Or um, you can... You can absolutely throw a cat. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Um. (laughs) I mean, you could always just show a person at a window holding a cat and pretending like they caught it and then have a show you at the base. (laughs) Right. Right. And then in between, it's just a shot of a a stuffed animal flying in the air. Well, you don't have to see the flying because the funny thing is, based on how it's inserted, you might not need to see the all the way float up. Mm-hmm. You know, if you if you patch it together with like the three, you know, rule of threes, your three most hilarious items that you should throw to the third floor. Uh-huh. You don't need to see them flying as long as you see the surprise of, you know, th- somebody catching them. Uh-huh. Right. OK. Like each time it's like, a, oh, a basketball. Perfect. <laughs> hey, that was the perfect thing to throw up here. Oh, a cat. OK. <laughs> okay. Oh, geez. Your record collection. Hmm. <laughs> OK, OK. Uh, learning a little tricks of the trade there. And yeah. <laughs> I do hope you film this. <laughs> now I'm going to have to. Oh, oh great. No, no added pressure. <laughs> so, I mean, in terms of the, the, the writing process, you know, that's what you would start to um, put down on paper is every mm-hmm. bit of that and make sure you have a button to finish it on. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you're either going out on a joke or a good feeling. Mm-hmm. And, um, and once you've got that script in place, then you just start working on the production part, which mm-hmm. can be as big or little as you choose. <laughs> yeah. And I know you're a big crafter of of mm-hmm. jokes. I mean, you even were in a, there was like a, a someone did a YouTube video uh, following you around working on a joke. Right. Right. Yeah. I did um, birth of a joke. Yes. Yeah. And, um, and I should uh, find that and, and uh, share it with uh, the audience uh, in the, yeah. in the bio. I was the, um, the pilot person for that. I don't know how many people did after me, but I think Chris Hardwick was the next one. Oh, so, interesting. Yeah. And, and I remember in that you were talking about, like the, it showed you go up on stage in one place and do a joke. And then you were like, okay, this part didn't seem to get as much of a laugh. So how can I tweak that? And that's, I think, valuable information for a lot of people. I, I think there are a lot of open micers who don't think of their jokes that way. They just go like, oh, well, this didn't go well tonight. Oh, well, I'll just tell it again some other time and see how it goes. <laughs> you know, like that's right. kind of what they right. do. But it's like, but there's a punch up process and that can start immediately. Um, yeah. and, and so when you're working on a, a script, how do you know if you've punched it up well, because you don't have audience feedback? That is such a good question. And I think, <laughs> yeah, because there's, there's no perfect answer. There's a few ways to vet it. Right. Mm-hmm. One is to simply find your, you know, five funniest friends and run it by them and, you know, make sure you're not missing opportunities for jokes or, um, or, you know, just to find out if it is funny enough or if you're, if you can stand by it, like in production, the good news is when you are making your own material, 
the pressure's on to make it as good as possible because you're presenting it. You're the one who's responsible for making it good. So do the work, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, run, run it by people you know. If, if things aren't landing, like give it some thought. Always keep in mind who your audience is though because like sometimes I'll give my scripts to friends who are, um, so I, I do a lot of screenwriting too. I'll, I'll give my scripts to friends who are really great screenwriters, but mm. they're not really comedy people. Mm. And it's interesting. The notes that I get from those folks are super different, right? Mm. Cause their priorities are really different. Right. You know, and some, somebody like that will say, well, this character is really flimsy. And then mm. someone else will be like, Oh my God, that character is amazing. It's the funniest thing ever. Oh yeah. Right? So some, I guess sometimes the benefit of getting those two different kinds of voices is that when story doesn't work, maybe someone who doesn't do comedy can point that out to you really well. But when it's a situation, the downside is when it's a situation like this, where one person saying, I don't like this character is not much to him. But someone else is saying this character is so perfect. So how do you deal with that? I think you just have to go with your heart and sometimes you're splitting the difference. Um, And this to me is the hardest thing. Getting notes is an art form. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as a stand-up, it's always very personal because you're like, hey, that's a joke that I wrote and I performed and it's about me. Mm-hmm. As a as a writer, it's still a little personal, but it, you can take a, one more step back because it's mm-hmm. typically a fictional piece. <laughs> I, I don't write nonfiction, but, um, but uh, I think the great thing about the feedback is you have the opportunity to find out what it's really about. Like, um, I, I recently wrote a kid's book that I'm putting out soon. What? <laughs> yeah. I mean, a lot of people write kids books, but I, I'm really proud of it. Like it rhymes. It was a great story. I think we'll see, but I'm, I've gotten feedback recently that maybe it's a little too long. Mm-hmm. And what I came to discover is that there's one part where there's too many big words. And I think I'm losing a little kids on this one page where there's too many big words. So ah. like, I don't think the note might be that it's too long. I think I need to focus on this page that I'm losing them. Mm-hmm. So occasionally you need to process the notes and make sure you're following what's really happening because sometimes you're getting notes that are the right department, but the wrong, like it's a symptom of the actual problem, mm-hmm. not the actual problem. Mm-hmm. And so it's really good to be able to do that with a film because occasionally you'll get a note multiple times and realize I do need to deal with this. Or sometimes you'll just get it from one person and be like, you know what? I'm good. Thank you for that, but mm-hmm. I'm going to keep this because it's how I envisioned it. Yeah. And then I guess you can always change things in the edit. True. True. It's an impost. Well, Sarah, it's so great having you on. There it is. I appreciate awesome. you coming on. It was really fun talking to you. Again. Oh, thank you for having me. It was great seeing you and catching up and I enjoyed this. I did not end up making that video. <laughs> The move was just too much to, to like tack on making a video on it. But you know what? Maybe we'll still do it and just fake it. 
Keep up with Sari online so you can find out when her book comes out. Go to her website, sariweb.com. Follow her on Twitter, at Sari Karplis. Links in bio. We also included a link to the birth of a joke video we talked about. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram, at There It Is Pod. Also, subscribe to our comedy lifestyle newsletter. It comes out every Monday, and it's free. Got a lot of tips and tricks in there for you. So check it out. Go to thereitispod.com for more info on the newsletter. Until next time, be good to each other. The music for the theme song was created by Neil Brooks. The rap was written and performed by Nick Acevedo. The logo for There It Is was created by Jeff Prater. The There It Is podcast is produced by Jason Farr. (laughs) 